0: Page to Practice – Applying Educational Reading in the Classroom Join in the conversation using hashtag PagePracticePodcast From Page to Practice is a podcast focusing on the application of educational reading in the classroom. Each episode features one book or article, my reflections and the thoughts of my guests on its use and impact in the classroom. Some episodes may also feature an introduction from the author. Hi, and welcome to episode 20 of From Page to Practice, the last episode of this first series. This episode is all about the Women Ed book, 10% Braver, Inspiring Women to Lead Education. In this episode, we are lucky enough to hear from Vivian Porritt, one of the co-editors, as well as Jill Berry, Claire Nichols, and Chris Hildrew, who all contributed chapters to the book. Following that, we have an amazing set of ten readers who all have a story to tell of how this book has influenced their practice. As per usual, it's a pleasure to bring all of this together. And without further ado, let's hear a bit about where this book came from.
1: Hello. This is Vivian Porritt, co editor of 10% Braver and one of the strategic leaders of Women Ed. Kezia and I loved editing 10% Braver as it tells the story of Women Ed and highlights the issues that women leaders and women educators face in the education workforce. Our main reason for writing the book was to reach women who aren't on Twitter Um, But actually, it's brought more women to Twitter to engage with our community, which is just fabulous. And we've just hit 34,000 followers, which is truly amazing. To be honest, we did hope it would be well received, but we've been thrilled by the phenomenal response it has had and continues to have. I remember clearly the book launch, which was a wonderful experience, and our publishers saying to us at the launch that they'd love another book. So, to our amazement, (laughs) Being 10% Braver comes out in December, just in time for Christmas. You're
0: listening to From Page to Practice. Join the conversation on Twitter using hashtag pagepracticepodcast. Thank you, Vivian. It's really interesting and inspiring to hear about the growth of the Women Ed community, and I can't wait to get my hands on a copy of the new book. Next up, we'll hear from Claire Nichols, who tweets at Bristol underscore teacher.
2: Hi, I'm Claire Nichols, and I wrote chapter 7 in 10% Braver, which is called Removing the Blinkers. My chapter reflects on my own story a fair bit and It's about leading with experience from different contexts. I have worked across the sectors in education. So I'm primary trained. I worked for a long time in a primary school, moving into cross-phase work as it was an all-through school then. And I taught in primary and secondary. I also have had a secondment to the leadership team in um, a specialist school. So I've taught in mainstream and special um, from nursery right up to post-16. And my frustration really was that people are pigeonholed in education into very small boxes. So you're primary trained or you're secondary trained, you're in a certain subject, you have a certain specialism, and... There was a sense for me that this started to feel like it was very gendered. That made me want to share my story and, and reflect on a few things. And I was really lucky that the Women Ed book gave me the chance to do that. So to summarise my chapter, I talked about what I feel can be learnt from combining leadership in different contexts, reflecting on the reasons why certain leadership experiences are valued more than others. Consider how leading across different sectors means that you don't just have transferable skills, you've got a lot more to offer. And try and suggest to school leaders why um, we should value these people with a range of experiences. So in the chapter I talk about, when you say you're a teacher, the follow-up question is often what do you teach? So straight away there's an assumption that all teachers teach secondary and primary colleagues will share my frustration at that question. I used to be quite facetious and just respond children. It was frustrating because straight away I thought, I don't fit the model, you're expecting secondary because that's what instantly comes to mind. When I said I taught primary, there would instantly be an assumption that I spent my day painting with small children or reading stories or or something like that. So primary education is so misunderstood by um, a lot of secondary colleagues, unfortunately. And I think it's really important that secondary colleagues really get to grips with what actually happens in primary schools um, and vice versa. So the amount of times I sat in leadership team meetings or um, staff meetings where we had primary and secondary colleagues from across and all through school, people would just get endlessly frustrated with each other, um, arguing about whether it was more difficult to teach a variety of subjects to one class or to teach one subject to a variety of classes. And I think there's a sense in education that everyone feels they've got it more difficult than, than someone else, you know, more marking or whatever the issue is. I just felt like we could be learning a huge amount from each other. Um, So my leadership journey has been coming through the SEN pathway and because of that, because that's such a specialist area, my experience in primary was really, really valued because I was always working with students who weren't at the same age-related expectation as their peers. So it was really useful to have, to know how to teach phonics when you were teaching year eights who needed that, for example. And I had training that my secondary colleagues wouldn't have had. And then going to work in a special school, it was really, really useful to have mainstream experience because one of the things we needed to do in the special school that I was leading was develop our assessment. And I'd come from mainstream, which has an incredibly robust system of assessment, and I was able to take the best parts of that. And then when I came back to work in mainstream and we were looking at the difficulties of the new age-related expectations assessment system being applied to children in mainstream with special educational needs, I had ideas that I could bring from the special school. And I just think my experience needs to be the norm. We can work together to enhance our practice. I know before I started my primary PGCE, I had to do two weeks experience in a primary school with one day in a secondary that's not enough. I think it's really, really important that we experience what other phases of education are like and experience what other sectors are like. I talk in the chapter about um, that leadership is a real real focus on sector-specific experience. Um, You're told that you need this huge body of experience in one particular type of school to go and lead that school. But the higher up you get, the more that those skills, they're not even specific to education. Um, and I'm not advocating for a second that people with no educational experience should be leading schools. I really strongly believe that that's not the case. But it's it's interesting how many head teachers will describe that a huge amount of what they do is to do with things like budget and HR and health and safety and, and those things that aren't just specific to education. And yet we're really, really stuck on someone having sector-specific experience. But a primary school teacher is very, very unlikely to be dealing with all the intricacies of a budget until they get into leadership. So it doesn't really make sense that that person needs to come from a primary background to have that experience. And I give lots of examples in my chapter. And really, what I I felt was that there was this hierarchy of sectors. So when we talk about education, we're talking about secondary education, That really seems the case from Twitter. Um, I know primary colleagues feel quite marginalised sometimes by the discussions that go on um, and the values that are made and the assumptions that are made. And early years is always left out of the conversation at both at policy level and classroom teacher discussion level. Um, and then special schools, again, so regularly left out of all these debates, all these questions. as I record this we're we're still in partial lockdown. and um, I know special school colleagues have been really frustrated about how the guidance doesn't apply in the same way. I've started thinking about why that might be, and um, it's not to do with the age of the children because arguably further education gets seen as less important if you look at paying conditions and amount of time devoted in educational press and online you know it's still secondary as that that big beast that we're we're supposed to to be discussing all the time so I I started thinking about why this might be and yes we know that there is there are far more women in teaching um, and that's even more so in primary we know that leadership teams Uh, there is a disparity and I I won't go into that because that's that's a huge focus of the book and I know that people from other chapters will be talking about that but I started thinking not just about the women working but the fact that a lot of the work is seen as gendered so in special schools and in early years a lot of the work you're doing is very caring work there's a lot of physical contact with children in terms of meeting their their basic needs um, you know in, in secondary it's very unlikely that you'll be doing any of those things unless, say, you're a first aider or very specific contexts. Whereas in primary school, you're you're helping the children a lot more. You're looking after them. You're you're doing a lot of um, parenting-style tasks, especially in early years. And um, there was some interesting research that I looked at in the chapter from special schools where trainees said that taking on a lot of the care duties for their students didn't make them feel any less professional, or any less like teachers, but I think that education is looked at in a completely different way. And the more care and support the students require, the more it's seen as women's work. And I think it's really important to challenge that. And um, I think we need more. We need more men in early years, um, and in special education. We need more women leading in secondary schools. Um, and what I didn't touch on in my, in my chapter, um, which in some ways I, I really wish I had done, but in other ways um, it's not my voice that needs to be heard on the issue, is how often black teachers will get stereotyped into leading in certain areas. You know, we know that there is not enough black leadership in schools. Um, there isn't enough black and minority ethnic leadership in general, but Bristol, where I where I teach specifically, has a real issue with the number of black teachers and the number of black leaders, especially given the pupil makeup. Um, and those those black leaders that we do have tend to be in pastoral roles or they're challenging behaviour. And there's a real issue with with how black teachers are seen, and it's something that really needs addressing. Um, And one of the ways, I think, in which we can start to address some of these issues in education in terms of diversifying the workforce is to start valuing people's experience and not pigeonhole people into certain roles um, and not look at someone and say, well, they're a woman from a primary background. Um, They're not going to be able to lead behaviour in this secondary Or, you know, we look at a secondary teacher and say, well, they're not going to have the range of expertise to lead in a special school. Um, There's far more um, commonality in education than things that divide us. And we do need subject specialists. And I I do talk about that in the book. I'm, I'm not advocating that we don't value subject knowledge and subject specialism. But I'm asking that when we're looking at leadership, we're thinking more about the skills that people have and we're valuing a diverse range of experience from a diverse range of people um, because that's that's how you develop leadership. And it's, it's really, really important to nurture staff and to listen to what they want out of their careers. And for me, that happened and um, I was allowed to do a secondment in a special school, which has hugely impacted on the Senko that I am now. I don't think without that experience I'd be half as good at my job. And the things that I'm leading now are really exciting. And I owe a lot to to that secondment, learning what things are like in special schools. That's made a massive difference. And I think my primary background really, really helps. So the the impact of opening up and looking at people with different different experience and valuing different styles of leadership gained from different contexts is so important and I hope that people read the chapter and some of it resonates and they really think about just having more flexible workplace structures and challenging some of the hierarchies that happen within education. You're listening to From Page to Practice. Join
0: the conversation on Twitter using hashtag pagepracticepodcast. Thank you, Claire. It's really interesting to hear your views and it's a really good reminder to us all that we need to understand other phases and contexts in order to really do our jobs well. Next up, we hear from Jill Berry about Chapter 8 and Jill
3: tweets at JillBerry102. Since I left Headship 10 years ago, I've been involved in various kinds of leadership development work, supporting serving and aspiring middle leaders and senior leaders and heads. I've been committed to Women Ed from the beginning, in 2015, and I've spoken at a number of Women Ed events, so I was delighted to be asked to contribute to the first Women Ed book, 10% Braver. And my chapter in the book offers advice to those applying for leadership positions at any level, what they can do best to prepare themselves and to give themselves the strongest chance of success. So it's about securing the job you dream of, whatever that job might be, within whatever context is appropriate. There are practical guidelines in the chapter which relate to doing careful research before you apply, crafting a well-informed and compelling written application, preparing for and performing well at interview, and then coping with either failure or success. I talk about how disappointed candidates need to make the most of the learning opportunity this presents, and how successful candidates can make the best possible use of the lead-in period between being appointed and officially stepping into the role, so that they have the most positive transition into their new professional identity. But I hope that the chapter offers more than just practical, technical advice. I hope it offers encouragement and that those who read it see the appeal of moving into a leadership position, which will challenge them in a constructive way and offer them the opportunity to make a difference to the lives of children and adults on an even broader scale than their current role does. I want them to feel enthusiastic and excited about the prospect. I want them to develop the self-belief and confidence To go for a job they will find fulfilling and energising so that they, the team they lead and the school they join, reap the rewards. I loved the different leadership roles I embraced across my 30-year career in schools. I loved headship especially and I want others to have the chance to achieve their personal and professional best within a context which is a strong fit for their vision and values. So if you're listening and you're in that position, then my advice is good luck, go for it.
0: You're listening to From Page to Practice. Join the conversation on Twitter using hashtag pagepracticepodcast. Thank you, Jill. Your chapter certainly is encouraging and inspiring. And I know we have at least one reader, if not more, who will reflect on your chapter specifically. So I shall say no more. The following contribution is from Chris Hildrew, who tweets at Chris Hildrew.
4: Hello, my name is Chris Hildrew. I'm head teacher of Churchill Academy and Sixth Form in North Somerset, and I'm the author of Chapter 9 in the book, 10% Braver Inspiring Women to Lead in Education. My chapter is called The He for She Agenda What Male Leaders Need to Do to Actively Enable Equality in Education. Uh, the chapter sets out to uh, identify and explore the issues that are behind the He for She agenda. Uh, it looks at whether leadership styles are gendered and looks at practical strategies that male leaders can use to enable equality in education uh, to employ and promote the he for she agenda. Uh, I was inspired to write the chapter because I attended a Women Ed Unconference and uh, for the first time in my life I felt like I was in a minority. I'm very used to going to conferences and seeing lots of people that look just like me, white, male, wearing a suit and tie. uh, And I feel comfortable in in those environments as I feel like my voice uh, can be heard and that I should be listened to. And when I went to the Women Edun conference, I was one of only four men uh, at the conference and I felt um, anxious and I felt worried and I felt like perhaps I didn't have the, the right to speak in that, in that environment because I wasn't in the majority an experience that, that I had been having my whole life. And it was a real realisation moment for me that uh, that this is the experience that uh, lots of people have when they don't have the privileges that I have been born with. Um, of course, the Women Ed uh, agenda is very inclusive and uh, it was made very clear by the Women Ed organizers that, that men had just as much right to participate in Women Ed as women did and that we had our role to play in that process. So um, following that experience, I, I wrote several pieces about uh, checking my, my privilege and, and understanding that, that uh, we need to actively include um, everyone in our, in our conversations. We need to invite them, we need to amplify them, we need to um, uh, sanction their, their contributions to the discussion. Otherwise, we might be missing out on valuable perspectives that might help inform and shape our, our own ideas. My other inspiration was Emma Watson, uh, who gave that fantastic speech uh, to launch the He For She movement at the United Nations. And in that speech, she said, if not me, who, if not now, when? And uh, when I was asked if I would be interested in writing a chapter on uh, He For She for the Women uh, Women Ed book, that was exactly what I ended up thinking. If not me, who, if not now, when? So, some of the practical strategies that I I wrote about in the chapter um, are that firstly, we need to make sure that women's ideas are heard. Uh, there's plenty of research out there that shows that that um, women's ideas are often uh, cross-attributed. That is, that men end up taking credit for the, the ideas that women have uh, and that men are much more likely to be speaking uh, in a meeting than, than women are. So we've uh, taken some proactive strategies around training for meeting chairs to ensure that gender equality is maintained within meetings. We talk about amplifying women's contributions so that when a, when a, a contribution is made, um, uh, male co- participants in the meeting can say things like, you know, as Ellen just said, or, or coming back to Sarah's idea, just showing that, um, you know, the ideas are correctly attributed and that we're building on those contributions that women have made rather than taking credit for them. Um, the second area we, t- we looked at was the idea of challenging the, the likability penalty. And, uh, you know, that, that, that there's some research which shows that, that women making tough decisions are more likely to be seen as, as doing it for personal reasons, whereas men making tough decisions are more likely to be seen as doing it because they're selflessly making the right decision for the good of the institution. So it's just calling that out and actively challenging the idea that, that uh, there is this likability penalty and making sure that we are, we are proactive in demonstrating that that element of gender equality. Uh, And just because a woman is making a tough decision in a leadership position doesn't necessarily mean that she's doing it personally. We talk about coaching and reverse mentoring, the idea of of receiving feedback from people who are hierarchically different to you in the organisation, listening to all perspectives and making sure that you're including those. And finally, celebrating women's achievements. I I look back at an old assembly that I'd done about um, uh, famous uh, you know, uh, determined characters, and I realised that that all of them were were male. So I scrapped that assembly, and I haven't done it again since. And just making sure that the role models we're presenting in front of our students in assemblies, in lessons, um, across our curriculum, are diverse and representative. They include women. They include uh, people of colour. They include the full spectrum of of people across the world, and that we don't fall into the the lazy privileged trap of just relying on the, the kind of dominant ideology, the patriarchal ideology of using uh, male figures to exemplify our ideas. Uh, finally, then, we talked about um, uh, a, s- a series of key questions that male leaders might want to answer uh, in relation to taking on the he agenda. So the first question was, can you ensure that women's vo- voices are not just heard but amplified in your school? The second question was, can you ensure that female role models are afforded equal prominence to males in your curriculum, assemblies and school environment? The third question was, can you check your own privilege, identify your own implicit biases and work to counteract them? And the fourth question, coming back to that Emma Watson speech was, if not you, then who? And if not now, then when? So thanks very much. This has been Chris Hildrew, head teacher at Church Academy in Sixth Form uh, and proud he-for-she advocate uh, and member of Women Ed. Um, and thanks very much for asking me to contribute to this podcast.
0: You're listening to From Page to Practice. Join the conversation on Twitter using hashtag page practice Podcast. If not me, who? If not now, when? What a great quotation to take away and I'm so pleased it led you to write this chapter. As well as being interesting to read, there are definitely some practical takeaways to consider from this chapter. The final chapter author we're going to hear from is Vivian Porritt, co-editor and author of Chapter 11. She tweets, at Vivian Porritt. Hi,
1: Vivian Porritt here, and I wrote Chapter 11, asking what price equality, giving the shocking gender pay gap. So many readers have said they had no idea it was so bad in education. I know I joined the teaching profession to eradicate inequality, so it's terrible to see women leaders being valued so poorly by those who agree pay in schools. I certainly call upon everyone who sits on every remuneration committee for schools and for trusts to table discussion about this and investigate the position for the women in your organisation. And having asked these questions, we need to be strategic in responding. For individual women, I ask you to absolutely be 10% braver. Negotiate your salary, your appraisal outcomes, flexible working and development opportunities that you need. When I work with women to help them to negotiate, whilst there are no guarantees, of course, They're often thrilled with the outcome, but what they're especially thrilled about is that they were courageous enough to ask and propose their expectations and what they think is right for them. Alison Peacock, who wrote the foreword, called 10% Braver a game changer. And I really do hope that the game is changing for women in terms of the gender pay gap. We must keep up the campaign about this so schools and trust leaders review their culture, their practice and their processes for women leaders. We all need to agitate for systemic change and be 10% braver to achieve this.
0: You're listening to From Page to Practice. Join the conversation on Twitter using hashtag pagepracticepodcast. Thank you, Vivian. An eye-opening chapter with lots of important things to keep in mind. Now that we've heard from the chapter authors, we'll start on the reader
5: reflections, beginning with Nicola Mooney, who tweets at Nicksnook. Hi, I'm Nicola Mooney, and at Easter, during lockdown, I started a new role as an assistant head teacher. I really wanted to talk about this book today, so 10% Braver by WomenEd, um, because it really has affected and it has empowered me to be able to make that leap to becoming a senior leader. Um, I've been a teacher for nearly 20 years and combine working full time with raising four children. Um, and I volunteered to do this podcast for several reasons. The first is that I've also recently become a network leader for women ed for the South West region, and I want to demonstrate how I live the values that I'm promoting. Secondly, because the 10% Braver movement has changed my outlook and made me more courageous and and made me more ambitious. Um, And thirdly, because I want to to pass on that um, 10% Braver aspect by empowering other people and by helping other people make choices and think about how they can progress their career, um, this book explains with clarity the types of inequalities that women face um, and how elements of this can come from unconscious bias. Jules says that we should agitate for change. And I think that's something that, as a, as a, as a female myself in leadership, it's something that I want to make sure that I'm actually promoting and, and enabling people to do to make those changes. Um, Women's eight C's are discussed throughout the book. Um, the eight C's are clarity, communication, connection, confidence, collaboration, challenge and change and the message for the need for change is echoed throughout the book and as the title says this is done by developing and encouraging women to be more confident in the choices they make. I've applied elements of the book to my own practice and I'm just going to discuss one aspect of that today um, and that is in the recruitment process of me actually being able to achieve that role of Of moving into senior leadership. Um, The chapter by Jill Berry was massively influential in in terms of this. Um, Jill discusses the eight C's um, and she talks a lot about clarity and about the importance of finding the right role in the right type of school Um, and for me this was really important and in, the, in those kind of decision making parts when I'm thinking about you know well, should I apply for the job, should I not apply for the job? Um, it actually kind of led me down the route of actually thinking I need to go and see the school first. So I, I did a pre-visit um, before the, before I applied for the role. Um, and that's really important so that I had that kind of clarity that it was the right kind of school that I could work in um and in that process where you're thinking well should you apply for it or should you not apply for it um the the chapter that that Sue Cowley wrote on bravery you know she asks you to evaluate what's the worst thing that could happen um and I think that's a really important point you know if I if I don't apply for the job then I'm definitely not going to get it um and the worst thing that could happen if I do apply for it is that I don't get it um and so you know that really did you know, crystallised my, my decision-making of actually thinking, I am going to apply for this job. Um, and I just kind of used the book to help give me that bit of confidence because I was applying for a senior leadership post. And actually, at that point in time, I wasn't really even a middle leader. So I was mainly essentially a classroom teacher who had a responsibility, whole school, for literacy. Um, and whilst I had previously had quite a lot of experience, so I had nearly 10 years' experience in middle leadership, um, it had been a, a while since I'd been a head of department so it had been kind of three and a half years since I'd been um, a head of department and I was obviously applying for an assistant head's role um, because I kind of felt that my previous experience and skill set kind of set me up to be able to do that um, but I also realised that it was you know, going to be quite a, a, a big leap. And so, you know, Sue says, if in doubt, just leave. And that's absolutely what I did. Um, so I applied for the job and then, you know, fortunately, um, was, was offered a post at the school. Um, and the book talks a lot about the importance of authenticity. I strongly feel that it's important to be kind of very stru- true to yourself and true to your own character. Um, Andrew Brown discusses about leading with differently with authenticity And I think that this has really empowered me to be myself um, and that my approach might be slightly different to other people on the teams, but the fact that, you know, within the team, the dynamics complement one another, I think that makes, you know, it work really well. Um, And I certainly don't want to be kind of like a carbon copy of of anyone else. Um, And this links back into the the chapter that um, Vivian wrote uh, where she talks about the, the confidence gap um And sometimes we avoid putting ourselves um out there, or you know we we don't do things or we feel that bit of imposter syndrome um and, and again this is this really comes down to kind of a perception perhaps held within women um that that we feel that you know we we have to fulfill all of the criteria on a on a job spec um or a, you know a a, a person um checklist in terms of you know if if there's a, a list of desirable qualities we kind of feel we have to fulfill all of those, um and actually i don't think that's necessarily the case and so sometimes just by having a go and you know applying for a job even if you don't fulfill all of the the person spec i think that you know i think it's worth having a go um so another area of the book that um i think's worth talking about is the chapter that chris hill drew um, wrote uh, where he discusses the he for she agenda the book obviously is is largely about the actions of women um, uh, and becoming more brave but there's the other side of it where chris looks at how men can um, support and, and champion women um, and recognize that that there is things that they can do to promote women being able to have a level playing field um, and also just that bit of an understanding that women may come to interview or may apply for jobs or may not have um, a linear career path um, but yet they can support that um, and guide women who um, perhaps have had a career break because if they had children or they've taken you know step back to become part-time um, and, and they can mentor and coach women to to progress their careers Finally, I'd say this book is really useful for people at any stage of their career. Um, I'd recommend it to both men and women. Um, I think it really is important that everybody has a greater understanding uh, of some of the challenges that women face. You're listening to From Page to Practice.
0: Join the conversation on Twitter using hashtag PagePracticePodcast. A reflection there from Nicola, which touched upon multiple chapters from the book. Our next contribution comes from fellow MFL teacher Katie Lockett, who tweets
6: at Katie Lockett. Hello, my name is Katie Lockett and I'm the head of an MFL faculty in Gloucestershire. And I have just finished my second year in this position and just finished my eighth year in teaching. I first discovered the Women Ed movement through Twitter Um, about two years ago when I was teaching in an international school abroad and preparing for my return to a state school in England and also preparing for my first middle leadership role and I was looking for a network that was going to help me uh, make friends and allies back in England um, because I was moving back to um, the country and also a network that was going to support me in my desire to be the best possible middle leader I could be and to be a future senior leader. And so I was very excited when the book was published in 2019 because by that point I was already well-versed in the Women Ed Network and had already attended many of their events. And I think the biggest takeaway for me from the book, 10% Braver, was empowerment. And the chapter I want to focus on in particular is uh, chapter eight, Jill Berry's chapter, which is called Applying for the Job You Dream of, Applying for Leadership Positions. And I think it's that applying for the job you dream of part of the chapter that really stood out for me. And I think, as I said, the, the biggest thing I got out of this book was empowerment and so um, the quote that really resonated with me from from Jill is that the application process is about considering where you are going in your career and how you will get there and also giving yourself the best possible chance in the application process and convincing the, the selection panel but actually yourself if you have the um, what it takes to take on this new professional identity, and so although um, when I first read this, I was new to a middle leadership position, and therefore not looking for a new job or for, uh, for a senior leadership position yet, the the two years since I've read this book have meant that I've had the opportunity to to get myself into that um, mindset. And I have used um, the the time to mentally prepare myself. So inspired by Jill Barry's chapter in the Ten Percent Braver book, I have um, contacted various head teachers and visited schools and shadowed senior leaders. I have. Um, taken on projects within my own school to develop my leadership capacity there I have um, enrolled myself in various leadership courses I have sought myself a mentor um, and actually one of those mentors is Jill Barry herself because I contacted her via Twitter after reading the chapter and um, I have also become a governor to help me learn more about the management of schools and for me that is exactly what the the page to practice for this book has been Uh, it has empowered me to believe that I can become a future senior leader it has shown me that so much of it is to do with mindset and preparation and it has given me the strength and belief to to do that preparation. And then, in terms of all of those things um, that I mentioned, that have been preparing me for senior leadership, have actually also helped me be a better middle leader and a better teacher, which is my current position as both a middle leader and a teacher. Um, because I believe in myself more, and because I that um, gives me more mental capacity to um, be the best that I can be and to support others to be the best that I can be. Because I think so much about leadership is supporting others. And I think that that really comes across really strongly, that support for others and that network that we need to be successful in leadership. It really comes across strongly in the Woman Ed um, 10% Braver book. So I think for me, the the biggest takeaway and the biggest... Um, page to practice of the 10% Braver book has been empowerment, self-belief and networking and supporting others. You're listening to From Page to Practice. Join
0: the conversation on Twitter using hashtag #PagePracticePodcast. podcast. My favourite word from Katie's reflection is empowerment. I'm pretty sure Jill and the other chapter authors will be pretty pleased with that too. The following
7: reflection comes from Susan Gardner, who tweets at BigSues24. Hi, my name's Susan Gardner. I am a MFL teacher and have been teaching for 17 years. 14 years of that time, I've been a pastoral leader. And in September, I begin a new job in a new school as a lead practitioner. I can pinpoint my relationship with Women Ed and the book 10% Braver to the second week of September in 2019 through one of those rabbit warren twitter mornings i'd come across a tweet by hannah wilson at ethical leader which really woke me up her tweet also was linked to the women ed on conference which was happening in sheffield in october and it was like a chink of light was shining on another world another world which With the 10% Braver Mantra, I felt that I wanted to be a part of. So I walked through that that curtain into the light and signed up for the Unconference. And I also signed up for a course with the Purposeful Educators. Last summer was the end of my normal. After a trust restructure, my pastoral role had disappeared and so had my purpose. And I'd felt after 16 years with the school that I had been metaphorically thrown on the scrap heap. And so I needed to rekindle my purpose and my sense of unique value and really embrace my, um, my worth. And I needed to find a tribe of leaders who were doing leadership differently at the UN conference i had no idea that i would hear women leaders utter phrases such as when you own your leadership role and lead from within you are empowering yourself you can do this if you have a moral purpose if you have a passion if you have a sense of belonging when you lead from within you're not alone there are others to connect with to collaborate with and to have a sense of community and really I went home on the train and I bought the book straight away and as I began to read the opening chapter at home when the book arrived those eight C's those eight values that women ed embrace really really struck um, struck very deeply with me I want to just talk about one of the values which is the value of connection which is one of my core values The peer-led approach to this, how it flattens the leadership hierarchy, really made me see that I could turn to other leaders, such as the CEO of a company or an existing head teacher or a deputy head teacher, and benefit from their wisdom. I widened my professional learning network and, and didn't have any trouble sitting next to people who... In the past, I would have considered to be better than me, or that I would have felt a certain weakness about myself sitting beside them. But because of the connection that it, that women had embraced, I was able to have my application forms that I was uh, submitting for jobs to be looked at and to be fed back on. And the challenge that I received from folk was, was absolutely unbelievable. And that connection and that challenge that my peers gave me really helped me to secure my my new job. A year in, thanks to the 10% Braver mantra, I do have a new school and I do make sure that I see that purple spine of the 10% Braver book from my bed because it has helped me to smash my internal ceiling. The questions and reflections that are at the end of each chapter are certainly challenging but the beauty is is that you can explore and and find answers to those questions within a community. Another chapter about connection and about community is Angela Brown's chapter about doing leadership differently. She talks about through the the various different case studies about leading differently with authenticity and again that, that value of authenticity is one of my own core values and it shines a light on contributors who have discovered who they are and who they want to be as a leader and I realised that for me that was one of the important pieces of work that I needed to do over the last year which was to find out who I was and, and who I wanted to be as a leader and because of Angela Brown's chapter I've then become a member of her nourished collective and I am hearing and reading stories of different women in all its messiness each week. And and that's really helping me to find my my own voice. At the end of the book, the 10% Braver and Women Ed talks about the agenda for the future and it's the other two Cs about challenge and change that also has helped me to secure a new a new job this year education is all about challenge we challenge ourselves and if it isn't challenging then there is no learning to be done and i realized that over the last 16 years of my career i hadn't been doing that personal work on myself and challenging myself. And that's something that I have changed in this last year. Change, women ed has to be about change. Too much needs to be put right simply to describe it and then leave it be. I do want to change myself as a woman and as an educator. And as I say, the the questions and the challenges that are posed at the end of each chapter are really provoking. And I have used this wonderful Purple Bible as more of a workbook than as a as a non-fiction reading book. And it certainly has been instrumental in helping me to find my voice and to help me have the confidence to say that I am remarkable and that I can do and have done remarkable things and know that the women within this community are able to shine a light on me and amplify my voice and I really would recommend anybody to to buy it and to use it as a toolbook and a reflective journal and to not think that you'll get through it within you know the first few weeks of the summer holidays but to think that this will be with you throughout a year or two and to keep dipping into it and keep reading about other leaders who have led from within, who have found their their voice and who are disrupting the status quo of of leadership and who have a moral purpose and a passion and a belonging and ultimately are here to create a new world for students to open their eyes and to have a a positive impact because after all that is what as educators we long to have
0: you're listening to from page to practice Join the conversation on Twitter using hashtag pagepracticepodcast. I especially like that Susan mentions the challenge provided by the reflective questions and how useful these are throughout the book. Thanks for sharing your story. Next up is Rachel Pena, who
8: tweets at RachelPH10. My name is Rachel Pena. I've been a teacher for about 10 years and I've been a middle leader Uh, leading Key Stage 1 for uh, four or five years um, in a large primary school. And and these are my reflections on 10% Braver Um, I read this as part of my own professional development really and the sense that I needed to be proactive in the next steps of my own career and it just seemed like something that would be really relevant to me. Um, It was a really fascinating read actually and got me quite fired up about various things. A few key takeaways for me, Uh, the first one seems kind of obvious but I think is important, is that it is titled 10% Braver and for me that seemed attainable, that's not too scary, something that you can actually start and do. I don't need to be 100% braver, just a little bit and I think there's a sense of taking small steps to make a big cumulative change really. Um Sue Cowley's chapter is quite an inspiring start to this. She says being 10% braver is about coming out of your comfort zone to take a small step even though you find it scary. Um so that seemed like the sort of little nudge that I needed really. <laughs> Um, The authors talk about their own experiences as well with sort of fear and imposter syndrome, even talking about the very writing in the book. And it's good not to feel alone in that lack of confidence and knowing that you can overcome it. You can take small steps out of your comfort zone. Um, The other, another sort of theme that came through for me was about knowing your own values and celebrating your own achievements. Um, Vivian Porritt has a chapter um, on the gender pay gap And she says, think about your own worth when you're applying or negotiating salary. And in Jill Berry's chapter on applying for leadership positions, she talks about setting parameters to decide what your non-negotiables are in terms of the next role you apply for. And I think often we're looking at roles and kind of desperate to get that next job or the move up the career ladder. And it's a different way to think about it. Actually, what will you accept and what are your non-negotiables and knowing that you have that value in yourself for the school that you might be applying for. And there are some interesting questions to reflect on at the end of chapter two that kind of link to that as well. Um, Another theme is the sort of pervasiveness of the gender equality issue. Obviously, I'm aware of that as a woman, come across lots of things in my life. But the range of experiences that are uh, mentioned through the book in a professional context reinforces that there's the problem of unconscious bias that's mentioned throughout and a really fascinating chapter by Jules Dolby uh, highlights the sort of deeply gendered nature of our culture and how deep-seated some of these things are the chapter that really fired me up actually and really resonated with me was the one on the he for she agenda by Chris Hildrew. recognized so many scenarios for that and it really chimed me this sense of not um giving all the burden of responsibility onto the women for fixing this problem and how we need to all work together on this and become more aware, um, particularly in sections about talk and meetings, kind of really resonated for me. Um, and there is a sense through the book that this issue of gender inequality for women in education is not just a problem for women. It has an impact right through from your kind of classroom interactions right up to board leadership at at mat level Um, and there are benefits to everyone in sorting out that um, equality issue. In terms of the application of this book, um, I think it's mainly to do with career development rather than classroom practice and changes perhaps in sort of organisational culture and that kind of thing. It will certainly help me to take some positive steps forward in my career. There is some practical guidance in there, but also some really helpful sort of mindset shifts in terms of changing the way you think or seeing a different perspective or knowing that you're not alone in facing some of these issues. Um, but there is some impact it's going to have on my practice, both at classroom level and in my middle leadership role. Um, in the classroom, one of the things I want to do, having read this, is have a real good look at our curriculum and the text that we use and see what are we showing the children what kind of role models do we have for them and, and are we giving them the curriculum through a gendered lens uh, a lot of as I've said about the sort of unconscious bias both for men and women Um. so I kind of want to examine that in the curriculum that we have really and also uh, as a linguistics background that I have that the, the uh, issue of talk and gendered talk is always something I've been fascinated by uh, it's prompted me to think about doing a bit of action research really in the classroom. You know, who do I select to talk? How do I talk as a class teacher to boys and girls? What do they say? Who talks the most? So uh, something for me to pick up on there, I think. In terms of leadership, on the one hand, this book, I think, will give me some more confidence in forging my own next steps in my career Um but also in the current role, you know, I've got a fantastically supportive and inclusive culture at our school, really good SLT. But there is potentially more that we can do. I think I need to have some discussions with the SLT about raising awareness, a bit more of conscious thinking, really, about this. Um, particularly, I think we've got some perhaps discussions to have around maybe meetings or recognition and just making bringing this up into people's conscious awareness Um, And it will benefit all the staff, really, I think, both male and female. So various things to take away for me to act upon, really. Um, I would recommend this as a good read for anyone who's lacking a bit of confidence. Um, I think that's obviously the title kind of hints at that. But it it really did make me feel that um, there are issues that other people are facing and that there are ways to tackle it. There are practical steps to tackle it and the sense of having that kind of community around you of support as well. And if you're thinking about maybe shaping the next steps of your career but you're not quite sure where to go, I think this is a really good read. Um, And definitely I think it will fire you up to be 10% braver. It already has for me. So, yeah, I hope you enjoy it.
0: You're listening to From Page to Practice. Join the conversation on Twitter using hashtag pagepracticepodcast. Thank you, Rachel. You're right. 10% isn't too much. It's the nudge some of us need to take some small steps out of our comfort zone. Taking us to the midpoint of the teacher reflections is Anne-Louise Jordan, who tweets at Lizzie84.
9: Hi, my name is Anne-Louise Jordan and I'm deputy head of King's College Infant School in Madrid. I'm really pleased to be talking to you about my reflections of the book 10% Braver and how I have moved those reflections from the page into my practice. So a wee bit about me. I've been in primary education now for 11 years and started out in Glasgow, Scotland before heading over to Spain where I've been for almost 10 years. So I'll never forget the day that I was given a free copy of the book. It was in The Hague whilst I was on placement for my Access to Headship Certificate with COBIS. And I met Liz Free, who was dressed up as a Victorian. Why not? Hey. So after telling her what I was doing, she told me to never underestimate the power of women and to go for whatever I wanted. She handed me the book with her chapter marked purposefully with the business card, of course. And that's where my new journey began right there in those five minutes. I read the book and to say I was inspired is an understatement. I saw on those pages the women who weren't afraid to ask for what they wanted. Within a couple of weeks of reading, I plucked up the courage and I asked for a promotion for the following year. I explained that I wanted to move up and that I was ready for it. There wasn't a promotion at that school, but the head teacher and director saw this need for me and gave me the courage to go for a deputy headship at another school. So I did, and I got it. I couldn't be happier with the wonderful community feel from Women Ed. Their CPD opportunities are outstanding, and being a better female leader has made me a better practitioner. I am happier, and more confident, and I know what needs to be done to inspire the children and colleagues I work with. The book asks you to reflect on yourself and set an agenda for the future. So some of the main things that I changed about my practice were these. I can now look those girls in the eye and know that I'm fighting for them and I'm representing them. I know that in my classroom discussions, I am giving the girls their voice. I am not underestimating them and I'm giving them their platform. I build trust between boys and girls. I know there are stereotypes in the very youngest of our children. So through careful curriculum planning, I can counteract this. I question my own biases constantly and look to what I can do to improve. One example I can give from very recently were the pictures we were using in our classrooms as a visual reminder of behaviours we would like them to show and behaviours we would prefer them not to choose. Looking at them with a set of eyes that questions gender bias, I immediately saw there were more boys in the picture of the undesired behaviours and this is not okay. We cannot have any gender bias in our classrooms. This book is about women using their voice to get where they want to be in leadership. But this also means ensuring you are the best leader and activist for the children in your classroom. I will ensure that the girls are challenged as equally as boys. I will destroy gender stereotypes and have clear representation of strong, powerful women. I would not have found this without this book. And Liz Free, of course. It is from reading 10% Braver that I was able to stand up and speak out, not only for myself, but for the children in my care and the colleagues in my team. So I hope you found it helpful and good luck with your reading.
0: You're listening to From Page to Practice. Join the conversation on Twitter using hashtag pagepracticepodcast. A great takeaway point there from Anne-Louise about bringing some of these issues into other people's consciousness. Alice Codner, who tweets at Ms Codner, is up next.
10: Hello, everyone. My name is Alice Codner, and I'm a primary school teacher in an inner-city primary school in London. I've been a school teacher for six years now, and that has been sometimes within the class. I've been a class teacher in years one, two and four now. And sometimes that's been outside of the classroom. So as the outdoor learning leader of the school, I've led a team to set up our school farm, which involves helping the children to grow vegetables and look after animals, which has been a real joy. I'm glad to be reflecting on 10% Braver for the From Page to Practice podcast. The first way that I felt that this book applied to my classroom life was the way that it made me realise that I'm not alone in the way that I criticise myself after lessons, that actually... That process of reflecting on a lesson and noticing the mistakes and the places where I could improve is not necessarily a bad thing, that it's part of honing our practice to get better and better as class teachers, but also that that self-criticism can make me feel like I'm not good enough and sometimes I can really get stuck on something when I make a mistake, I can go back over it and actually that really can knock your confidence going back over and over a mistake. That can lead to a lack of confidence and something that 10% Braver, the book, discussed was this confidence gap in the workplace between men and women. And that actually a lack of confidence or feeling afraid of doing something, that's not a reason not to work towards leadership. That feeling of not being good enough in the classroom actually could be a sign that you are a really reflective practitioner and actually that you would be wonderful in school leadership. So that was one of my takeaways was that the lack of confidence or feeling afraid is not a reason not to work towards school leadership that actually I'm not alone in that. And the feeling of being afraid or not being good enough or not being confident enough is something that you can feel all the way through the leadership journey, that I'm not alone in that, that many people feel that and that it is not a reason to stop there. You can still carry on. It also made me realise that my unusual journey through school uh, teaching, um, school work, that my unusual journey is also not a reason to preclude myself from school leadership, that there are leaders who work part-time, there are leaders who have had all sorts of different roles in schools, who also have done a really wonderful job in their role and all the more so for having broad experiences. So that was another of my takeaways that a lack of confidence is not a reason not to work towards leadership and also an unusual career through school life is not a reason not to work towards school leadership. I suppose it made me wonder how many of the choices that I make are because of who I am as an individual and how many of them are because of what I am conditioned to think as a woman. So, if I haven't put myself forward for roles or positions, is it genuinely just because I didn't really want to? Or is it because of a greater trend of women not necessarily wanting to put themselves forward because of being seen that being seen as a negative thing? But what I came away with wasn't that I should be a leader, that I needed to kind of buck the trend somehow. Or maybe kind of equalise the proportions of men and women in leadership. It wasn't that I should work towards school leadership, but it's to make sure that I understand that I could work towards school leadership, that that is a possibility. I think the book made me think about what are the barriers that stop me from considering school leadership and actually broke down some of those barriers for me. That tagline of 10% braver, even just by itself, I find incredibly helpful that in classroom life, maybe it's with the way that I'm teaching, or in home life, or in career over, overall more generally, that that tagline of 10% braver can be helpful. It can be a good challenge to not to have to be a totally different person, not to have to change myself in some way, but just to try and be a tiny bit braver, just a little bit braver, and to see what happens. So thank you Women Ed for that book. I really enjoyed reading it and I look forward to seeing what else comes from Women Ed. I know that you've got another book coming out soon so thank you for having me.
0: You're listening to From Page to Practice. Join the conversation on Twitter using hashtag page practice podcast. Thanks Alice, your story is really interesting to hear. Now we hear from Kieran Mayhill, who tweets at Mayhill_underscore_Kieran.
11: Hello, my name's Kieran Mayhill, and I'm a history and politics teacher in East London, soon to become an assistant head teacher in a local community school. My key takeaways from reading Ten Percent Braver were that, really, that education and society at large is, is far from equal there are some shocking statistics that that make this point for me so 62% of teachers in secondary schools are women yet only 39% of current secondary head teachers are female and those statistics become even more shocking when considering educators of color only 3.1% of head teachers across the country um, are from that group, even though around 30% of the student population um, are students of colour. The book also um, makes it it clear that there are people behind this data. Uh, There was a anecdote that really stuck with me about um, one very successful school leader who was going for a head teacher position uh, felt that she'd performed um, well throughout all the feedback was incredibly positive even when being told that she was unfortunate and didn't get the job um, everything was positive it was it was said to her quite directly that they thought that given it was a mining community they would take better to a male headteacher rather than a woman. And that was one of the reasons why she didn't get the job. I mean, it's just shocking, really. Um, uh, and it, and it's not just good enough, I think, what the book made me really reflect is it's not just good enough to say how outrageous this situation is. Um, we all have to do more. And The Deeds Not Words was a very helpful slogan for the suffragette movement at the turn of the 20th century. And I think this book is what makes me reflect on that now. It's it's what we do about this that matters. So how I've applied the learning from the book um, into my own practice is in kind of three ways. So I applied the learning directly um, into my classroom and then to schools more generally, and then in my kind of personal professional growth. So in terms of my classroom practice, it really made me reflect upon how gender balanced my teaching is. Um, as I said, I'm a history and politics teacher. Um, so when thinking about the history curriculum, I'm, I, it made me really question uh, the texts that we use, the images that students receive, how are women um, from the past represented? Are they? Um, what What implications does that have for young girls now seeing how they navigate the world? Um, do they have leaders that, that look like um, them or not? So I definitely um, went on a really kind of really focused effort to ensure that um, women weren't just tokenistically placed in history that we you know we've been there throughout and to make that clear in in our learning. Um, another action of mine actually came from um, reading the uh, Samina Chowdhury's chapter and within her chapter she, um, she puts forward a, a role model named Fatima Alfari. And uh, Fatima Al-Fari was um, a founder of one of the world's oldest universities um, in a, in what we'd call the sort of golden age of Islam over, you know, sort of millennia ago. And not that many people uh, know about her and her role. And it also, that sort of quite it made us look like in the department about... Um, how much of our uh, history perhaps is is Eurocentric. So it, it helped us decolonize our history uh, curriculum um, as well. And uh, I, I'm now pleased to say that uh, Fatima al-Fari not just is a part of the 10% Braver um, book, but is also um, a person who our students learn about um, when looking at the golden age of Islam. Uh, another way in which I've applied the learning is... In thinking about schools more generally. So, how gender neutral are schools? Um, which roles and responsibilities uh, do we assign to girls and boys? Do we allow girls and boys to do without question? Um, in some of our practices, are we are we do we sometimes punish girls a bit more for, let's say, fighting with one another and let boys off the hook because boys will be boys? And all of this has made me think about um, how you actively have to go about challenging your own practice, challenging people around you to ensure that our schools are gender neutral places. Um, and then finally, personally, um, being 10% braver um, has has been a motto that I've tried to uh, live by. Um, so I have put myself forward for promotion. Um, I have pushed others around me um, because it's really important that, as I said, we are doing more to want to um, be the change we want to see. And then finally, why should somebody else read this book? Um, Well, I think sometimes um, we can feel perhaps a bit deflated and, and devalued and um and alone really uh, as teachers in our in our classrooms and not necessarily feeling that um people around us feel the same way but actually in reading this book it's just quite clear that there are so many women out there um to instantly feel connected with um, and reading this book can really give you sort of the confidence to um, challenge and to change um, your settings, what you want and the kind of education system um, that we'll believe is possible.
0: You're listening to From Page to Practice. Join the conversation on Twitter using hashtag #PagePracticePodcast. podcast. Thank you, Kieran, and I think I'm right in saying that being 10% braver has extended as far as contributing a chapter to the next book. A returning contributor now, who I really enjoy listening to, and that's Lucy Flower, who tweets at Mrs L Flower.
12: Hi, I'm Lucy Flower, a former assistant head teacher having stepped down after a difficult return from maternity leave. I write for the TESS and write and speak about leadership on Twitter at Mrs L Flower. Braver, Inspiring Women to Lead Education. This entire book was transformative for me. Discovering this community of the most impressive women was at first really daunting, but then I read their chapters. Warm, research-led, inspiring, with case studies of successful women, I started to realise, with a shock, that these women were just like me. Ambitious, yes. Clever, yes, but also empathetic, relatable, compassionate and witty. When reaching out on Twitter, this was no less the case. The generosity with their time and expertise is demonstrated again and again. All of the chapters are anger-inducing and inspirational, but they offer practical takeaways to utilise as an individual to agitate the system. The following chapters were the ones that spoke the most to me. Doing Leadership Differently by Angela Brown. This chapter had case studies of women leaders leading in their own way, utilising authenticity, their life experience, compassion and empathy, and absolutely smashing it. This introduced me for the very first time to the concept of authentic leadership and flipped everything I thought I knew about what it takes to be a good leader on its head. This gave me the courage in my own practice to lead authentically, rather than putting on a a perceived strong persona. Through doing this, I realised that this was giving me results. After the surprised reactions from those I led when I admitted to mistakes, or when I showed emotion, or when I displayed compassion, their work ethic was more motivated than ever, and the results spoke for themselves. What price equality... The Gender Pay Gap by Vivian Porritt. This chapter infuriated me. It lit a real fire of anger and passion and determination to change the system within me. Uh, Vivian explains the possible reasons behind a really complex interlocking situation in a really clear and insightful way. And this chapter had me nodding vigorously in agreement as did her rallying cry of practical takeaways for both individual and organisational level. From this, when I move into my next leadership role, I'm determined to negotiate a higher starting salary that befits my experience and also to use that role to enact real change, real organisational change in recruitment, retention and promotion of women leaders at all levels. Get the Job You Dream Of, Applying for Leadership Positions by Jill Berry. Until reading this, I had never really considered my why for leadership, other than the ambition and the drive of of achieving the next rung on the ladder. I realised that I pursued opportunities to gain the achievement without really being discerning about whether it was the right fit for me or the right time. This chapter offers really pragmatic suggestions for making the interview process two way. I've actually been using this in my recent job seeking, really questioning and investigating fearlessly, including ringing up head teachers to speak with them personally to really delve down into the deep um, questions of, of what their organisation is all about and what their leadership is like. This has prevented me from going into a role that really was not right for me. And has enabled me to believe that the right role is out there and given me the courage and the perseverance to keep on pushing and pushing and asking those questions and being fearless in my investigation to find out if the role is the right one for me as well as if I am the right person for that role. You should read this book if you are passionate about education and about the future of education. It's really clear that we need more women leaders to, um, to join us in leading schools. Ask yourself, if not me, who? If not now, when? You're listening to From Page
0: to Practice. Join the conversation on Twitter using hashtag pagepracticepodcast. Isn't Lucy just so enjoyable to listen to? As we near the end of our reader contributions now, we hear from Megan Brown at MBHistory on Twitter.
13: Hello, my name is Megan Brown and I have just completed my final year studying history at the University of York. If all goes to plan and I graduate, I'll be starting a school direct teacher training programme in Cheltenham, alongside a PGCE from the University of Bristol in September. And I'm really excited to share my reflections on 10% Braver, inspiring women to lead education, edited by Vivian Porritt and Kezia Featherstone. I sat down to read this book and I'd ordered it because I'd seen it on Twitter and other things I'd read. And I was really prepared to conclude that actually it would be more useful in kind of five or six years time when I was in a position to be applying for senior leadership positions. And actually, I was completely wrong. I, I really do think this is a must read for anyone entering the teaching profession. The book highlighted three key things. The gender inequality in teaching how we can begin to tackle this and actually my role in ensuring this continues to be addressed. It really focused on the power of individual action and ensuring that gender inequality is removed from the teaching profession. And I'll be the first to admit that I've not considered the impact of gender inequality on me personally, probably enough, Um, and I've certainly never felt I couldn't do something because I was a woman and I've never really appreciated the challenges that women in teaching faced. I've seen it as quite a female-friendly profession and actually a family-friendly profession. And this book really challenged my perception of this, but also made me realise that there are practical solutions which can address these issues, and women ed is vital in driving this change. The most significant statistic in this book for me was that 62% of secondary school teachers are women, yet only 39% are heads. And I looked at that statistic and I thought, well, clearly it is more, far easier for a man to become a head teacher than it is for a woman. And I'm somebody who's wanted to be a teacher for my whole life, and actually I want teaching to be a long-term career and that makes me quite ambitious about where I'd like to end up and the fact that my gender could impact on my chances of achieving my dream of becoming a head teacher to me seemed completely unbelievable yet these statistics and the stories in the book really do speak for themselves. The book really confirmed the importance of Women Ed's mission through the eight C's in ensuring that everyone entering the teaching profession should feel that they have the opportunity and ability to achieve their goal. Sue Cowley's chapter on being 10% baver reveals how this phrase was coined And actually, it's a really simple phrase, but it made me reflect on a lot of the kind of things I've been involved in, um, especially over lockdown in the last few weeks. I've really tried to make the most of uh, kind of edgy Twitter and the online opportunities that have kind of arisen and the conferences. And actually, every time I've done this, I've kind of felt a little bit of imposter syndrome, you know, constantly qualifying You know, I'm not a qualified teacher, so you might not want my opinion or I'm only entering the profession or, you know, I'm very inexperienced. And I think... The phrase has made me realise, you know, for me, actually, in the last couple of weeks, being 10% Braver has been taking part in in some of these things. And it really makes them seem achievable. But it's also made me accept that it's it's okay to be ambitious. It's okay to want to be a head teacher. And actually, in order to achieve this, I need to take and apply for leadership opportunities when they arise. If we want more women leading education, then we need to have more women applying for leadership roles. And I really do hope to be part of this change in a very, very small way. But my first mission um, of being 10% braver is to get QTS first. I also found Angela Brown's chapter on doing leadership differently incredibly shocking and inspirational. And this was perhaps surprising as the title maybe implied that it'd be more relevant for for somebody who was actually in a leadership position in a school. But actually I was wrong again and this chapter demonstrated, you know, the practical implication of being 10% braver. And I tweeted how shocked I was at the story of Claire Cuthbert, who had been told she hadn't been given the position of a head teacher because the working class kind of local mining community would be more aligned to a male figure. And I just couldn't believe this example existed in the female-friendly education system that I thought I was entering into. You know, but her story of overcoming this and becoming an incredibly successful CEO was really inspiring. I'd also like to reflect on Helena Marsh and Caroline Darbyshire's chapter Flexing Our Schools. And this might seem a really odd chapter to focus on because I'm 21, and I've got no family responsibility, and I probably will not have to necessarily think about part-time work um, for another 10 years or so but I think it I think I should I should reflect on this chapter I think I should because it's really really important to show that it's so valuable to see the opportunities for women after they have children how this doesn't have to be a barrier to further progression and actually women ed throughout the book kind of references other organizations such as maternity CPD and I recently shared on Twitter that I'd like to be an SLT member and have a family partly because uh, these organisations have kind of been on my feed a lot, and I'd seen a lot of people doing CPD whilst on maternity leave. In particular, actually reading Lucy Hemsley's blog, um, a Woman ed advocate uh, on uh, on the CPD she had been doing whilst on maternity leave, and I really hadn't realised how valuable it would be for me to read this until I did. And this chapter for me really contributed to this wider movement by showing that flexible working is a practical and achievable option, and it almost for me just removed the pressure of you know will I have to think about this in the future of having children or my career. And actually, if I wanted to go part-time, then that was a complete option. But I also think um, for someone entering a profession, it's incredibly important that we give women this message, you know, as a way of addressing the retention gap. Um, if I felt that I entered the profession and actually I wasn't in a family-friendly career it probably would change my perception of teaching and and change my my career goals if I didn't feel that I could become a leader and have a family because they are two really important things to me. And I think it also encourages those who perhaps have children and want to change careers that actually, you know, teaching is family friendly and we will will have women who are working in leadership positions and part-time. So I felt this was a really important chapter for me to reflect on. Vivian Porritt also talked about the gender pay gap and I'll be the first to admit I didn't realise the difference between the gender pay gap and equal pay. Gender pay gap referring to the average difference between all men and women, or the pay between all men and women in an organisation. So women as a result earn less due to the wide issues that they face. This highlighted this to me but also gave me some practical tips for the future if I ever felt I was not earning the salary I should be based on my experience. And also gave me genuine hope that actually we can begin to tackle some of these issues and WomenEdge is vital in doing this. So I really do believe that this book is an essential read for anyone entering the profession. It provides a genuine insight into the challenges faced by women in teaching, whilst also providing practical and achievable solutions. I am incredibly lucky to have read this book before I began my initial teacher training, and even luckier that WomenEd exists whilst I'm entering the profession. For me, the book gave me the confidence, the confidence to know it's okay to want to be ambitious and want to have a family in the future, and to make the most of any opportunity that arises. It is thanks to WomenEd that I'll always strive to be 10% braver.
0: You're listening to From Page to Practice. Join the conversation on Twitter using hashtag pagepracticepodcast. It's lovely to hear from someone at a very different career stage to the rest of today's contributors. Finally, we hear from Lizana Oberhosa, returning for a third time. She tweets at LO
14: underscore for all. 10% Braver, edited by Paul Rett and Featherstone, is an important and inspirational book produced by a range of female and male educators on how to address issues regarding gender balance in education and the workplace. The book shares that 7% of women in education will attempt to negotiate their initial salary offer compared to 57% of their male counterparts. One in four teachers who leave the classroom for good in recent years are women between the ages of 30 and 39. The book is described as the ultimate guide for women and men in education to address gender balance and to take action. Professor Dame Alison Peacock, Chief Executive of the Chartered College of Teaching, stated that this book matters because it is guaranteed to inspire, to educate and to spark a much-needed clamour for women to assume roles of influence throughout our education system. 10% Braver is timely and hugely influential It challenges its audience and readers to question the status quo. It calls all to action, to make a difference, to role model and to walk the talk by making a small difference every day. 10% Braver becomes a philosophy and a way of living and being, not just a mantra. The book has inspired thousands of women and men to start engaging in the conversation. More needs to be done, but by being 10% Braver, the book's authors open up a much-needed forum to discuss these issues, to take action. However, 10% Braver not only led to us being 10% Braver, it inspired others to follow too. In Women Aid's second book, due for release in the autumn term, titled Being 10% Braver Stories and Inspirational Accounts of Women Who Took the Score for Action to Heart, is shared too and is, is bound to be as inspirational as the first one. You're listening to From Page to Practice.
0: Join the conversation on Twitter using hashtag page practice Podcast. Wow, it's been a mammoth episode, which with this book I always knew it would be. So I'm so pleased I chose to close this series with it. Before I go, I have to say a huge thank you to everyone that has supported From Page to Practice over the last 11 months. Whether you're an author that's spoken about their book, a teacher that shared your reflections, or an all-important regular listener or subscriber, I couldn't do it without you. Thank you all. Also, a big thanks to any publisher that has sent me books to feature. I have a few from Crown House ready to go for the next series. The, this podcast is encouraging an expensive book-buying habit, so anything that helps with that is much appreciated. I'm taking August off of the podcast, but From Page to Practice will return in September, Kickstarting the year with Sarah Mullins' What They Didn't Teach Me on my PGCE. The variety in this book and the sheer number of contributions mean it's bound to be another jam-packed bumper-length episode. Have a lovely summer, and I'll see you in September. You've been listening to From Page to Practice. Don't forget to join in the conversation using hashtag PagePracticePodcast. Alternatively, to suggest a book or article, or volunteer to contribute to an episode, visit learninglinguist.co.uk forward slash PagePracticePodcast. Thanks go to Kevin MacLeod of Encomitech.com for use of the tracks Cheery Monday and Fuzzball Parade, which are licensed under Creative Commons.